now on to um, what I think is probably, you know, what we will look back on as one of the most uh, kind of outstanding and spectacular parts of the Trump administration, and that's him meeting with North Korean uh, leader Kim Jong-un. And in the studio, uh, we have Nicholas Koo from the Politics Department here at the University of Otago. Uh, good afternoon, Nick. Glad to be here, George. Uh, and Nick is a expert on East Asia um, uh, and Chinese uh, foreign policy. So we had this um, this summit, which <laughs> kind of um, took people by surprise. That's um, right. I, I guess surprised you. Uh, to some extent, if you'd asked me in January whether I thought something like this would happen, mm-hmm. I'd, uh, I, like probably most specialists, would have said that they would be quite surprised. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it took place in, in Singapore, uh, and Trump and Kim Jong-un uh, met a, and, and shook hands. In terms of the kind of content of, of that, that um, summit, was there some kind of communique that was you know jointly signed or what were the outcomes there sure there was a um i must be said very vague mm-hmm. two page uh, uh document i i say document rather than agreement yeah precisely because uh the details are very sketchy and very vague and uh, that then leads us to think uh, well why is that the case uh and and we could go in various directions um, uh, which could or would be necessarily speculative Um, that said um, you know talking is always good Um, prior to the summit for the various months leading up to it uh, US relations with North Korea were extremely bad Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's not a good thing Mm. Um, so talking is good Mm -hmm. having the summit in Singapore you know it's better than not having it States talking rather than using force to resolve disputes is is not something we want to uh, we want to welcome. Uh, that said, the fact that uh, the movement since the summit has not necessarily been toward complete verifiable right. denuclearization, uh, in other words, concrete actions that reduce tension, ha- have not necessarily. Uh, Evolved much is uh, something that is a concern mm. because ultimately we do want to see results, concrete results, as as your question suggests. So, w- what the, what's the calculation going on there on on North Korea Korea's part? Are they, I don't know, are they buying time or trying to look legitimate on the international stage, or w- what do you think is the thinking going on there? Yeah, that that's a good question because we we really need to step back for a while and consider how this summit even came about. And my analysis is that it really came about because the North Koreans wanted the summit. Mm -hmm. Let me explain. So what happened was the North Koreans detonated the nuclear device for the sixth time in late uh, 2017. And then Kim kick-started a number of moves. Uh, He sought and got an invitation to the South Korean Winter Olympics that kick-started an improvement in South Korean relations with North Korea and so the leaders of both sides met uh, at the DMZ as you would have heard Uh, and then 
when the South Korean National Security Advisor went to Washington, D.C. to brief uh, President Trump on, on the developments. Uh, Donald Trump, um, it must be said, uh, quite surprisingly, uh, stated that he would be interested in meeting with the North Korean leader. Um, and this then led to the Singapore summit. So just to be very clear, the genesis of this meeting in Singapore <coughs> was a movement by the North Korean side, uh, which in some respects, if you think about it conceptually and theoretically and so forth, it's it's really them being in charge of the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is yeah. it something that they often, if they often asked to meet? Well, there have been a whole series of meetings over the last two decades, mm. right? Uh, starting in 1994, we had what was called the Agreed Framework between the U.S. and North Korea. Uh, this was during the Clinton administration. And as a result of the Agreed Framework, we had a series of meetings for about six years or so. And after that, during the Bush administration, uh, from 2003 to 2009, we had a series of agreements called, uh, under the rubric of the six-party talks. Mm-hmm. So talks are not necessarily new, uh, and the fact that we've had talks and still the the clear outcome of all, in spite of the talks, is that North Korea actually has made progress on a nuclear weapon, should therefore cause us to be quite skeptical, mm-hmm. despite our wish in progress uh, on this issue. And so uh, we are where we are, um, and... Um, We'll just have to see how things evolve. But having said that, the majority, vast majority of specialist opinion is of the view that uh, the North Koreans are really trying to perfect a nuclear weapons program. Mm-hmm. My understanding about summits like this is that it's the um, officials lower down the hierarchy um, meeting with their counterparts yes. that really matters. Uh, and I wonder if maybe with this summit, uh, it was centered around these two personalities, these two quite spectacular personalities, uh, meeting with each other, and you know maybe there was a lack of the backroom stuff going on. Would that be your sense that it was, it was a media um, com- um, summit rather than uh, something of of su- of substance? Yes, that, I mean it must be said that this. As, as you've hinted at, is a quite unusual summit in the sense that it was top-down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was clear that um, the decision was made to have the summit and then the preparations went ahead. Right, yeah. Right, so this is a highly unusual summit. Now, um, you know, we want progress in whatever way we can achieve it. Mm-hmm. And certainly progress on this nu- this important nuclear issue uh, is more than welcome, however we achieve it. But at the end of the day, we do have to look at results. And uh, we will see over the coming months whether this approach can yield the results that uh, most of the world seeks. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, in terms of, I guess, past attempts at isolating North Korea. I really yes. want to get your your opinion on the um, effectiveness of sanctions uh, and that kind of thing because you know one of the um, yes. criticisms of Trump is that it, it, in the summit is that it, it legitimizes uh, North Korea on the international stage. That's right. 
Well, where do you stand on, on, on those issues? Sanctions can work. Uh, for example, you could make a, I think, quite solid argument that sanctions have worked on the Iran nuclear weapons program. Mm-hmm. Um, but it should be said, Iran is not North Korea. Iran is a much more open economy that is vulnerable to sanctions. North Korea is arguably the most closed society in the 21st century. Yeah, It is the state you would expect sanctions to fail, right? Right. So once we take the context into consideration, I think we come to a pretty clear picture, which is that North Korea has managed to acquire nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons capability for a reason. It's because they've managed to evade sanctions Mm -hmm. over these many years, including successive UN Security Council uh, um, uh, declarations that uh, have actually gone to the level of enforcement and have been actually relatively ineffective at uh, stopping the progress of this nuclear weapons program. Um, so in the uh, the Trump administration, we've had uh, figures like Pompeo, figures like um, John Bolton, That's I right. think is a, you know, a big kind of um, part of, of this. Right. And so this term regime change comes up and That's this right. term the Libya model That's right. comes up. What, what, what are the chances of... of of that kind of um, operation? If pushed, I'd say it's unlikely because of the possible consequences of regime change. They would be catastrophic. Seoul, the capital of South Korea, is extremely near the border between North and South Korea. So any attempt by the United States at regime change would then lead to a response by the North Korean military which would have horrendous consequences on both sides. So that needs to be pretty clear and that's why most specialists would anticipate that there will not be an attempt by the United States at certainly the use of military force to effect regime change. That being said, it's possible to conceive of a number of scenarios where uh, all parties involved in this Situation, whatever you, uh, you, whatever word you use to characterize it, end up inadvertently in a situation where you get a conflict that escalates to the point of potentially making the North Korean regime vulnerable to regime change, mm. and then you can spin off a number of very complex scenarios. Um, but certainly, in terms of intending to cause regime change. I I don't believe that this is something that uh, the United States ultimately would take the step to effect. Right. Right. Despite what John Bolton may have said before he assumed the post of National mm. Security Council, uh, National Security Advisor. And it is something that I guess the, the US, um, you know, even though it's unlikely, it's something that they can kind of fall into or bumble in themselves into sure. in a way, lo- looking at uh, sure. history. I guess... The, talking about regime change, I, I guess it's hard to to try and um, talk about the internal politics of, of North Korea it, right. it, itself. And you know, I, I have wondered about where uh, Kim Jong Un's um, you know officials and allies and rivals 
stand on 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 the summit and and this new kind of um, tone of of communication with the sure. West. Do you do you have an idea about that? Well, again, this is is arguably the most opaque society on the world uh, stage at the moment. Uh, it has been for a very very long time. Uh, we do know that there have been a number of high-level officials uh, who have disappeared mm. uh, in the sense of they have been executed uh, over the years under Kim, right? And uh, this, is, uh, this is proof that he's quite ruthless, right? At the same time, we also know that his brother was killed in, in the Kuala Lumpur International Airport. Um, yeah, acting on the uh, instructions of the of the regime, uh, a number of agents of North Korea basically executed um, uh, Kim's brother. So, you know, this is a highly unusual regime. Um, that said, yeah, by all estimates, this is also a rational regime. It is not a crazy regime. Mm -hmm. I, I know there have been comments made by. Uh, for example, the U.S. ambassador to uh, the U.N. Security Council, uh, Nikki Haley, claiming mm -hmm. that uh, Kim is irrational, crazy. Trump himself has stated on occasion that uh, Kim is crazy. Uh, that's not the view shared by the vast majority of academic specialists on this. Um, if you look at, for example, the North Korean nuclear weapons program, mm -hmm. this is a program that did not just appear overnight. This is a nuclear weapons program that has its roots deep into the early parts of the Cold War. And the North Korean regime has persistently, methodically pursued this program, on and off at times, I'll, I'll grant you that. But it has pursued this program because they believe that they require it for their survival as a state. Now, we may disagree uh, in terms of values as to whether that is the right way for North Korea to uh, ensure its security and its survival. But they obviously control the state and they'll make their own assessment. Mm -hmm. And successive uh, leaders in North Korea, and of course this is, the, uh, this is basically a family regime, mm. right? Uh, you've had, we're now in the third generation uh, of leadership uh, under the Kim family. And it's hard to conceive, really, why he would give up his nuclear weapons program. So the onus is, is on people who are claiming that uh, nuclear weapons abolition can occur with North Korea to state why exactly they believe this would be the case. Mm -hmm. What incentives can be created for North Korea to relinquish its nuclear weapons program? Yeah. Right? And at the same time, uh, it's not just North Korea that's integral or important in this in this issue. We have to think about obviously the United States, we have to think about um, US allies, South Korea and uh, Japan and also uh, last but not least by any measure we need to consider the interests of China. Mm. And I, I definitely want to get to China just before all this might relate to it actually. Uh, I think you should ask about the, uh, uh, the six-party talks. Why did the six-party talks fail? Sure. So six-party talks failed because North Korea proceeded to have uh, uh, make progress on its nuclear weapons okay. uh, program, and in particular, in 2006, they detonated a nuclear device, uh, and this uh, basically put a end to the six-party talks, which right. were really about 
denuclearizing North Korea. Now, that said, the talks did extend uh, a few more years, but really it became very clear North Korea was not taking the uh, talks very seriously. Uh, it did not intend to give up nuclear weapons. And eventually the talks just died a natural death once the uh, Bush uh, regime uh, at the time in the United States uh, left office. Mm -hmm. Okay, so China. China's uh, position on the the summit uh, in this new this new tone of, of diplomacy. Well, China welcomes anything that would bring stability to uh, the region and Northeast Asia in particular. Um, China, to be very clear, has voted in the United Nations Security Council against North Korea having nuclear weapons. So North Korea, uh, in a perfect world, would not want North Korea to have nuclear weapons. That said, North Korea is a sovereign state that can make its own decisions. So what China can do is to place pressure on North Korea uh, through san sanctioning uh, North Korea at the UN Security Council, imposing UN uh, sanctions that involve um, economic measures that punish North Korea. Um, China is the number one trading partner with North Korea. Uh, and depending on the estimates, roughly about 90% of um, North Korean trade with the rest of the world is with one state, mm -hmm. i.e. China. So China does have leverage uh, over North Korea, but it's not complete leverage. Um, as we've seen over the past few years, North Korea will ultimately make decisions in its national interest. And China can pressure uh, North Korea to engage in talks. But ultimately, North Korea has shown that it's willing to cause em enormous hardship on its people uh, in pursuit of the nuclear weapons program. And North Korea doesn't want to be um, controlled by China. Mm -hmm. So it's it's quite a complex relationship between China and North Korea, and it's an alliance relationship. They signed an alliance treaty in 1961. In 1950, China intervened in the Korean War, mm -hmm. and it must be said to keep the North Korean regime alive. Um, and so if China were to look at the situation today, they'll say um, it's evolving in a positive dire direction in the sense that it doesn't look like the United States is going to use military force to dislodge uh, the, the Kim regime um, and at the same time China has a relatively good relationship with South Korea uh, and it believes that it has the diplomatic nous to maneuver and negotiate a form of stability on the, the Korean Peninsula for the foreseeable future. Is there any credibility to you know the, the accusations that China isn't doing enough? These accusations that Trump makes quite often Sure. Uh, well, one thing to note is that we would expect Trump to say that mm -hmm. because he would always want the Chinese to do something or a number of things that would uh, make U.S. policy uh, more effective on this issue. But again, China is a sovereign state. Uh, China, as I mentioned before, is interested in stability. And what Trump is calling for, certain measures he's called for in the past, do not necessarily uh, lead to stability in in the Chinese view. Mm -hmm. um, just to to finish up, I, I want to change tack a bit and and sure. talk about China itself. Yeah, will China rule the world? Will well, it replace the U.S.? Well, that's certainly a very big question. <laughs> um, we got to keep, I think, our focus in perspective. Mm -hmm. um, 
if we're talking about the world, then I'd say no, mm-hmm. uh, because China has never ruled the world. But having said that, uh, China has done something that's quite significant in the past, which is China, prior to the arrival of the European states in Asia in the 19th century, was the leading state in Asia, uh, and East Asia to be specific. So if, if we kind of zoom in our focus on East Asia, I don't think it's unrealistic to say that if China's economic growth were to carry on for the next few decades and U.S. Um, economic growth is less, much less than Chinese, it's not inconceivable that somewhere in the 21st century the Chinese could replace the United States. Now, that's mm. not to say it will happen because China is really... Um, halfway through a reform process that started in 1978 under Deng Xiaoping, it still has a long way to go to ever reach this stage of development comparable to any major European state, let alone the United States. So we really do have a long way to go Mm. uh, before we can actually make an accurate, I think, assessment of the situation. But certainly, they've had tremendous economic growth. The achievements in China have been relatively spectacular, it must be said, Mm. and they are well on their way to becoming certainly, apart from the United States, the major voice in regional affairs in East Asia. Yeah, I found it very interesting when Hillary Clinton was in Auckland and she talked about how New Zealand was on the front line against Chinese uh, influence in the Asia-Pacific and uh, I think she was maybe a bit mistaken. Uh, you know, New Zealand has has been, um, you know, had its hand out t- towards, uh, you know, China in the economic um, sense. So there seems to be a bit of a contradiction uh, going on there. Even with U.S. Um, foreign policy it, it itself, I, I can imagine there is a bit of a kind of, um, you, you know, a cold a cold war isn't really possible because of the nature of of global capital and economics and that kind of thing well it's a very complex situation we have in in in, in east asia at this current point in time right um we have china uh being for example new zealand's number one trading partner as Mm -hmm. it is with many asian states um but at the same time um two states that china has uh tremendous territorial disputes with in East Asia, Vietnam and the Philippines. Um, China has high levels of economic independence with these two states, yet it has very serious territorial disputes. Mm. And so, you know, it's it's a complex picture out there. Um, and this is only one of the issues. There yeah. are a whole host of issues ranging from the environment to economic inequality throughout the region. And even, it must be said, within China itself. Mm-hmm. China's facing major de- environmental issues, uh, disparities in income mm-hmm. between top, uh, the top 1% and, and the rest of China. And so uh, we need to keep a sense of perspective into all this. And this is without even considering China's foreign policy. For example, its need to deal with North Korea, as well as the United States, Japan, etc., etc. Mm. All right. Thanks, Nick, for, for coming in and sharing your, your insight there. It's an it's a exciting region and, and definitely, I, I guess... Um, uh, you know, important for New Zealanders to kind of pay attention to as well. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me, George.